Welcome to Calvary. My name is Dahlia and I'm the director of women's ministry here. Here at Calvary, we want this to be a place where you can come and worship, get to know God and connect into our community. If you're new here, we can't wait to get to know you. So feel free to message us on social media or text the word hello to 587-323-1199 and we'll respond right back. This is a great first step to joining our church family. We also want you to experience daily personal encounters with God, discipleship, and community. So if you want to learn more about our culture here, deepen your relationship with God, and find a small group that you can really connect with, we would love to encourage you to talk to one of our volunteers or staff after the service. I'm so glad you could join us today. The thing I think I hated the most growing up on a farm was doing chores. Throughout my, ten year, my teen years, uh, I'm feeding up, I'm up early feeding cattle, I'm carrying buckets of five gallons of water out to the trough, or maybe I'm milking the cow <clears throat> by hand, I have a few stories around that one, but this is all before I leave for school in the morning, there are things that we do on the farm, that you just do in order to make life on the farm work. And that's not to mention that I had music rehearsals before school even started, so it just pushed the whole, my morning chores even earlier. But when I was younger, and all my siblings were still home, our family schedule was that Saturday was chore day. Everything from cleaning the house, baking for the next week, taking out the garbage, maybe mowing the lawn. These weren't daily chores, they were weekly chores. And every sibling had their responsibility. And as far back as I can remember, taking out the garbage was one of mine. And here's a picture, I don't know if you can make sense of it, it's back in the early 70s. Uh, maybe it's not there. There it is. So that's me. My back is turned. That's my older brother. This is us doing the garbage together. The other chore that I had was cleaning up and sweeping the basement for our farmhouse, originally built in 1885. Now, the basement always seemed to become such a mess, whether it was the wood that we were taking down all the time to, to, that we heated our house with, or it was the work clothes from doing chores or the field work, I always felt overwhelmed in my job. And I can remember complaining, why was I the one that had to do this job? Well, if I was more honest with you, I would say it's just because I was lazy. I hated work. And my sister's here this morning, and she could attest that this is true. In my early childhood mind, work was way overrated. Play was way better, way more fun. You know, life is full of jobs that many of us don't like to do. 
What are some of them for you? Maybe it's cleaning the washroom, changing diapers. Maybe it's garbage like I had to do or groceries. Maybe it's preparing the meal or cleaning up the meal. Maybe it's paying bills, making your bed, doing homework. The reality is that these tasks, these tasks can be and they need to be done by all of us. They don't require any special talent or gifting in order to do them. Some of us may be better at them or more efficient, but everyone can and will at some point do them in order for our home to function with order and not chaos. Now, this is a significant contrast to the meaningful contribution that we talked about a couple weeks ago. I believe that God has designed each one of us to make a meaningful contribution to the society around us. And for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, a meaningful contribution to the kingdom of God and to the body of, of, of Christ, which is the church. That's the family, the community of God. No matter the level of our brokenness, no matter the mistakes <clears throat> that we have made or the pain that we have experienced from others, God's heart is to restore us. His heart to restore us includes us to discover our destiny. That task... <clears throat> our destiny, that task, that problem that we have been designed to solve by God. He wants us to help rise us out of the pit that we often find ourselves in. His desire is to fill us with the Holy Spirit, his power and his presence. Fill our hearts with his love, helping us to experience his peace and his joy in the midst of whatever challenges we face. And he often uses our mistakes he uses our hurts, that pit that we are in, to enable us to help others. And helping us find our meaningful contribution is a part of God helping us find our fit, our place in the body of Christ. Every one of us has something to offer. Now, these contributions are unique because each one of us are unique. There are almost 8 billion, 7.888 to be more precise, people of us in the world. And all of us, not one of us, are the same. God in his creativity has created each one of us unique. And so in the things that we're good at, and our personality, and our quirks, they all enrich our contribution. You know, we're in a series this summer exploring the book of Nehemiah. You'll find it as the 16th book in the Old Testament, which is the first part of the Bible. If you were just joining us, the theme for this first half of this historical record is God's heart to restore. Nehemiah is an, is an Israelite who grew up in Persia, and his ancestors were among those who were exiled to Babylon when King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and destroyed Jerusalem, its capital. Now, some 150 years later, in about 445 BC, we read that this Nehemiah has become one of the most trusted confidants of King Artaxerxes, rule of Persia, for about 40 years. And when Nehemiah's brother, Hanani, returns from Jerusalem, 
Nehemiah has been asking about the city and how the people are doing. And the report is so grim that God places within Nehemiah's heart the desire to seek the king's favor to leave the city of Susa, which is in southwestern Iran today, and his position as cupbearer to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to reform the community of God there. He has traveled the three to four month journey from Susa to Jerusalem with a large entourage of, of officials and military personnel and several thousand exiles who were allowed, actually encouraged to go back, to migrate back to Jerusalem. And not to mention all the resources it takes to feed these people on foot as they make this trip, and then all the materials that were donated for them to complete this construction project. Well, last week, Pastor Doug explored some of the supernatural strategies that Nehemiah uses as he prepares for this enormous attack, enormous task. And today, we see the work begin. Chapter 3 is a fascinating read. Perhaps incredibly boring for others of us because in 32 verses it records some 41 different project locations both large and small and it lists the various individuals and families working on them the task is to build the walls to rebuild the walls which will secure not only the safety of God's people there in Jerusalem but it will also restore the dignity their dignity before their surrounding communities. And as we looked at a couple weeks ago, this was Nehemiah's meaningful contribution, his, his destiny. It was the problem that he had been uniquely designed to solve. And though this was true for him, this wasn't true for anybody else who was going to be leaning in to accomplish this great task in this historical moment. For them, this job is just a chore that none of us really enjoy doing. Most were not engineers. They had never even engaged in construction, let alone rebuilding a wall that was some nine feet thick. The amount of debris and the rubble that they will need to be cleared out is overwhelming. And heavy labor would have been the last thing anybody wanted to do, and I'm not even sure their hands were calloused enough to handle rock all day long. And though it may have been Nehemiah's destiny, it is not the unique problem that they were specifically designed to solve. Like chores, many of us, that, that many of us don't want to do, this was simply a task here that anybody and everybody could lean in. And they do. Everybody can do something, and they do. And I find it fascinating, the principles here, the examples that are displayed right here in Nehemiah chapter 3 that shape our attitude, that shape our perspective in serving in some of the most mundane aspects of life. We won't be reading the entire chapter verse by verse. I would encourage you, I'd like to know how you can do reading all those Hebrews' names. Perhaps you can do better than I. But let's look at some of these principles that we learn in how these people responded to God. If you have your notes, you can pull them out. We'll be following them along. Uh, there's some ushers around. If you, if you don't have a, a set of notes, you can just raise your hand and they will get you one. Let's pray. 
as we look at the word. God, I thank you that your word is alive and active. I pray that I know that every word written here, inspired by you, Holy Spirit, is for our encouragement. It's for our in, uh, correction. It's for our strengthening. So I pray that your word would come alive for us as we look at it now. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. God's heart to restore invites us to, first of all, jump in first. Verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors, building the wall as far as uh, building the wall as far as the tower of the hundred, which they dedicated, and the tower of Hananel. So, just in case you're curious, the way this verse is written is almost identical to the rest of the 31 verses of this chapter. It's repeated over and over again, just with different names and different locations. What I love about this verse one, about, about what happens here, is that it is the spiritual leaders that jump in first. They knew the mission that God had given the entire community through Nehemiah, and they were going to lead by example. It wasn't their idea. It didn't need to be their idea. They simply said yes to God and then rolled up their sleeves. Number two, God invites us to work together. 31 times in 32 verses next to him or beside them, some version of that, it describes how they worked shoulder to shoulder. It didn't matter if they liked the family that they were working next to. They didn't let personality, they didn't let temperament differences get in the way of pursuing their mission. And the whole family is involved in some way. Verse 12, Shalom, son of Halohash, and his daughters repaired the next section. He was the leader of the other half of the district of Jerusalem. Halohash's daughters were not immune to this hard, dusty work. And though the details of who was getting the groceries and who's making the meals and who's cleaning up aren't described in this chapter, we know those were all tasks that needed to get done in order for the work to continue. No one can carry on a mission that Jesus is calling us to alone. We need to be connected into community so together we can accomplish what God has called us to. And that's why we believe so strongly in small groups. Not sure what your experience is, but they are not for us just to sit comfortably. They are a mini church where everyone has something to offer, especially when as a group we are seeking the Holy Spirit for our mission, those people that God is calling us to reach. We need to be connected into community. Number three, God invites us to walk in humility. Here's a good example of a bad example. Verse five, next were the people from Tekoa, though their leaders refused to work with the construction supervisors. Tekoa was a city located about 16 kilometers south of Jerusalem. And my understanding that this is a town made up primarily of Israelites who were not taken away in the exile to Babylon. So these are distant relatives, part of the nation of Israel. Now, another translation of this verse reads, the nobles would not stoop. 
And another says, they would not bring their necks under. The imagery of the Hebrew here is a phrase that depicts when oxen refuse to yield to the yoke of plowing a field. These dignitaries would not humble themselves to the rule of their supervisors. It's arrogance and pride that says a job is too low, too mundane, too below us. Verse 14 gives a much better example of humility. Sorry, verse 9. Raphaiah, son of Hur, the leader of half the district of Jerusalem, was next to them on the wall. As I understand it, as a part of his administrative duties, before this wall project started, Raphaiah had been in charge of half the forced labor of the entire Jerusalem area. And yet, he works on the wall side by side with the other builders. He willingly submits himself to the supervisors of this project. And he's not alone. There were three more high-ranking government officials over various regions in and around Jerusalem that did not see themselves above this pure, hard labor that was required on this mission. People from all different social statuses worked together for the benefit of the community. Humility. You know, one of those officials was Melchiah. Look what he and his family <clears throat> were willing to do. The dung gate was repaired by Milkiah, son of Rechab, the leader of the Bath Hakarim district. He rebuilt it, set its doors, and established, installed, <clears throat> excuse me, its bolts and bars. It's a very special person who volunteers to repair the sewer system. Imagine what that would have smelt like day in and day out in that hot summer sun. Oh, yeah. I can just imagine dad coming home to the kids going, hey, kids, guess where we get to work? Melchiah had grown up in a high government official's home. So he would have known, he would have known an easy way to live and yet willing to do what it takes. A great contrast to those leaders from Tekoa. Humility, coming under the yoke of the authority <clears throat> over us is something that even Jesus invites us to do. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. You know, there was a season in my 20s where I felt 
that my importance and my value was defined by a leadership role. I think of a water ski weekend where, that we did for kids who don't know Jesus through my ministry at Youth for Christ. In fact, Steve and Pam Vandegrift are here. Steve was my boss back then. Dude, that was like 30 years ago. It was my first experience leading an event like this, and embarrassingly, I can remember thinking that helping with the dishes or any other mundane, behind-the-scenes kind of task for this retreat was beneath me. I had to learn a lot. God needed to do a significant work in my heart regarding my own arrogance and my pride. You know, there are times where we just roll up our sleeves and get to work, no matter our position in life, or in the company, or in the school district, or in the government, or in the church. Never too proud. When we link ourselves with Jesus Christ, we become servants just like Jesus was. God's heart is to take our pride and our arrogance, to expose the roots to why we are that way in the first place, to bring healing to the hurts and the brokenness beneath the surface of our life so that we may receive wholeness, that we receive a thankful heart and the honor of true godliness in Christ. Fourthly, there are times... God invites us to work outside our comfort zone. Verse 8. Next was Uziel, son of Harhaiah, a goldsmith by trade, who also worked on the wall. Beyond him was Hananiah, a manufacturer of perfumes. They built and restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Verse 31, verse 32, all the way to the end of the chapter. Melchiah was one of the goldsmiths. He repaired the wall as far as the housing for the temple servants and merchants across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner. The other goldsmiths and merchants repaired the wall from that corner to the sheep gate. Goldsmiths, makers of perfumes, merchants. These are not your construction guys who are used to doing this kind of work, and nor are their families. But evidently, their attitude was not, oh, I don't need to do work with stone. I, I don't know how to do that, so I don't need to help. Or that's a laborer's responsibility. That's not me. I'm not going to help. No, they push themselves outside their comfort zone. It is very possible that the perfume makers had never built such a massive stone wall, and therefore had no idea how to repair and how to secure them. Well, Nehemiah had thought about this. He anticipated it. And according to verse 5, he had appointed engineering supervisors who were responsible for the build of this massive nine-foot wall and were to help show those who didn't know what to do how to do it. I think one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit includes these goldsmiths, perfume makers and merchants in Nehemiah's list here is for us some 2,500 years later to see that there were people from all walks of life 
and a full spectrum of skill level who simply chose to lean in. They stepped outside their comfort zone to contribute to the mission that God had called them to. They simply did what they could. You know, I've worked with people who, when they had heard that there was a need for small group leaders, they stepped forward. And they said, we're not sure that God, that we're going to be good at this, but if God can use us, we're willing to give it a try. And as it turns out, they become fantastic leaders. People respond to them well, and without knowing it initially, they were actually working with the Holy Spirit to fan into flame some of the, holy, the, the gifts that the Holy Spirit were, were, had deposited into their heart with them without even knowing it, simply because they were willing to step outside their comfort zone to help do something just because there was something that needed to be done. You know, when, when Lorianne and I were married only a few weeks, we had gone to a family reunion in a, in a Bible camp in Saskatchewan. And as I and one of her uncles were in the, wa- the men's washroom cleaning up before bed, we noticed that the toilet was plugged and it was overflowing. In fact, it was almost covering the entire washroom floor. Well, looking at each other with that knowing look on our face, we take a deep breath and we begin to clean up the mess. Took us late into the evening. Neither of us had the official responsibility, that was somebody else's, of managing the washrooms during this reunion, but we just did what we simply needed to get done. Stepping outside of our comfort zone. The fifth observation is this. Go the extra mile. You know, here's two examples of several in this text. Verse 20. Next to him was Baruch, son of Zabai, who zealously repaired an additional section from the angle to the, at the door, to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Notice that they didn't do it reluctantly or begrudgingly. They did it zealously. They were enthusiastic. They were diligent. They had a high-level commitment to excellence. Now, we don't know if their first section was smaller and so they finished before others or whether their zeal just enables them to get their same size of project done faster. It doesn't matter. They kept working even when they didn't have to. Perhaps they could have sat back and said, whoa, that was a lot of work. Now let's go relax for the evening. They go the the extra mile. Another example, verse 27. Then came the people of Tekoa who repaired another section across from the great projecting tower and over to the wall of Ophel. Remember the people of Tekoa? They were the ones whose leaders would not lower themselves to such a mundane and exhausting task. Yet, their enthusiasm and the willingness to go the extra mile, they they showed a humility and a determination that put their leaders to shame. Now, number six, I've left this to the end because I was blown away by how significant this is. God invites us to demonstrate his work in our life. Verse 11, then came Melchiah, son of Haram, and Habash, uh, Hashab, son of Parahath Moab, 
who repaired another section of the wall and the tower of the ovens. Melchiah was a man who had married a foreign wife, who at that time it was illegal to do that, and had been convicted of some wrong under Ezra's priestly leadership some 13 years earlier. Somehow, this guy makes things right. And the building of Jerusalem walls provides him with the opportunity to reaffirm, in a very practical term, his obedience to God and his love for God's people. You see, God's heart is to restore broken people. He's the God of second chances. I love this. If you feel that you are too broken to come to God, if you feel like you've made too many mistakes, that he'll never, he'll never accept you. If you've carried guilt and shame and condemnation like a wet blanket that just, that just covers everything of who you are because of what you've done, you are not so far away that God's grace cannot reach you. Past failures do not need to limit God's unmerited favor in your life. Will you run to God? You are welcome in his arms. The blood of Jesus will cover your sin and wash away your guilt and your shame. And if this is where you're at, if you pull out your notes on the back of it here, is just a, a very brief kind of step-by-step description of how you can come to God. You can read this through yourself, and then there's a prayer there for you to follow if you like. You could even do this right now. Forget about the rest of the message. <clears throat> Don't even listen to me. Just process some of these things and make your own decision about whether you will follow Jesus Christ today or not. You know, I'm not sure that God is going to call us to rebuild a wall. For one, there's not many cities around the world that have walls like this anymore. But God is still in the restoration business. Jesus is still in the business of rebuilding lives. And he uses us to do it. And sometimes it means that we do tasks that just need to be done. Perhaps it'll be to pray for someone. Just pause in a conversation and pray for them. Maybe it'll be to clean a toilet, vacuum a floor, organize the groceries. Maybe it's to drive somebody to a doctor's appointment. Perhaps just to sit and listen to someone who's hurting. Maybe it's to cut a lawn for someone temporarily not able. Is there a mission? Is there a project? Is there a task? Is there a friend, a person who is in your life who just needs someone to step in and do what it takes. Are you willing to be that person? You know, I like how the Apostle Paul wrote it in his letter to the church of Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. It's not on PowerPoint, but he, he writes this. He says, God makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. You know, I'd just like to give us a few moments to consider this.
In a moment, there's going to be a question on the screen for us to consider. And we're just going to sit here quietly, no music, nothing, and just, well, seek to hear from the Holy Spirit. And then the band will come and lead us in worship as we close the service. But before they, we do that, let's pray. God, there's those of us who just love doing behind-the-scenes tasks. And so a message like this is like, oh, yeah, that's me. There's others of us that don't like doing those things. We're too impatient. We're too busy. We think our own agendas are too important that we're above these things. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us about where we're at here? And would you do a work within us, preparing our heart? How is it that you want to use us? Perhaps during this time of reflection, would you bring a name, would you bring a face of someone that we can serve simply by doing what it takes to help them? I guard this time by Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, would you speak to us? Amen.